great to be here with you this morning. We're thankful that you have joined us. Uh, you know, it's interesting that as we sing, as we worship, I was thinking, you know, that really, you know, all that we do here at Grace Bible Church, we endeavor to do in the name of the Lord. And we endeavor to unashamedly proclaim His name. And we believe that the Lord Jesus is the true King who reigns on high. As the psalmist boldly proclaims, Yahweh has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. We believe that Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord currently rules from His throne in heaven. He rules over all things and we believe there is no exception to His kingdom. Yet it doesn't take much deduction, even as I was praying earlier, it doesn't take much deduction to it doesn't take a lot of logic to understand, to recognize that our world is under the control of a sinister force. Our world, the world that we live in, is currently ruled by ungodly men and women who are characterized by their unrighteousness. We witness all manner of evil around us every day with the goodness of God's creation as the backdrop. We live in a bountiful world, do we not? Yet, we see children starving. We live in a beautiful creation, yet we see massive storms that kill thousands. We witness the beauty of procreation, yet we see the fallout of man's love for sexual sin. We see the love of a mother for her child who grows up to be a monster. In short, we know that our world is currently under the control of Satan, the, the evil one. The Apostle Paul calls him the ruler of the power of the air. In Ephesians 2.2, James warns us that those who are friends with this current world are hostile toward God and set themselves as enemies of God. The Apostle John warns us not to love the world, nor the things of the world. And if anyone loves the world, According to 1 John 2, 15 and 16, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. We believe that, we believe that God's eternal rule cannot be broken, yet He has allowed our current world to be, a, be subjected to the power of the evil one. But we trust God's promise to redeem our world along with those who live for Him now. Just listen to 1 John 3.8. Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of God was manifested for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. You see, we believe that Jesus, the Lord Jesus, is currently ruling from the, on the throne of His Father in heaven. We believe that He is the rightful King of this earth. He is, he is the one who Daniel described in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Daniel saw one like a, a son of man, or like the son of man, approaching the throne of God. And Daniel tells us that he was given, that the son of man was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the Son of Man who has been given dominion and glory and a kingdom. 
and all, all the peoples will serve him. He has earned the right to rule over creation by his perfect life, by his sin-atoning death on the cross, and by his resurrection and power from the dead. In Isaiah 40, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah promised, God promised through the prophet Isaiah comfort to his people. He promised his people will experience the true comfort, by, true comfort by his mighty hand. And he also promised that all flesh will see the glory of Yahweh. Friend, God has promised these things, therefore we can, entru- we can trust and believe them to be true. And today we're returning to our study in Matthew's Gospel, which we have titled, we've titled The King and His Glory. And this, this morning we're going to see or look, begin to look at another convincing proof that Jesus is the rightful king and ruler of God's kingdom. In Matthew 3, 1-12, Matthew uses the ministry of the king's herald, John the Baptist, as further proof that Jesus is the true king who deserves our worship. Now today we're going to begin to look at his ministry, John's ministry, and we're going to see that it was marked by John being a unique messenger. He also is marked, his ministry is marked by his preaching of an unrivaled message. And we're going to see also that he has, or he had an unusual mission. Now we will see that his unusual mission was to usher in the promised Messiah. His ministry would set in motion God's promises given through the mouth of Isaiah, which we just I just discussed, these promises will climax with the promise found in Isaiah 40, verse 5. In Isaiah 40, verse 5, it says, Then the glory of Yahweh will be revealed, and all flesh will see it together. Then it says, For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Now, before we dive into our text this morning, I thought it would be helpful to, help, to give you a, a review of our study up to this point our study in, in Matthew. So after our review, we're going to only have time to look at the first mark of, of John the Baptist's ministry, actually briefly in Mark 2, the, the, the second mark. But for now, let me pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning. I pray for this time that you would be glorified by it. Father, I pray that you would give me strength to preach your word that I would preach in a way that is pleasing to you, that I would have clarity of thought, that I would communicate your truth. But more than anything, I pray that I would decrease as you increase, that I would magnify you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen. Now as we get started with our review this morning, I should remind you that The Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew, the tax collector. If you want to turn briefly to Matthew 9.9, and as you're doing so, you may recall that tax collectors were absolutely despised by the people of Israel. They were hated because they had sold sold themselves out to Rome for the purpose of exacting taxes on the people. In Jewish society, tax collectors were the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth, not fit for proper society. Considered as they were considered as traitors to the people, they were literal sellouts to Rome. The Jews utterly despised Roman occupation, so they truly hated those who aided Rome, especially those who participated in their wicked system of taxation. No self-respecting Jew would ever become a tax collector. 
No self-respecting Jew would even associate with one. The Jews hated them, and worse yet, they regarded them as ceremonially unclean because they had daily contact with the Romans. And as we have seen in our study, the Pharisees, the legalists of Matthew's day, 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 had greatly expanded the law's requirements. They added a myriad of man-made rules to the law. More than anything, they were incredibly obsessed over what was clean and what was unclean. According to the Pharisees, if you came into contact with something ceremonially unclean, then you were unclean. You were defiled. There was there was a grave. There were grave spiritual con- consequences for coming into contact with unclean things, and so therefore, no one willingly put themselves in that position. According to uh, according to the Pharisees, the Romans were absolutely unclean. Money was certainly unclean. Therefore, tax collectors who came into contact with both multiple times a day were ceremonially unclean. Therefore, they were excluded from everything. They were excluded from the civil life of of the Jews and especially from religious life. And according to Matthew 9.9, Matthew was a tax collector. Therefore, he was considered defiled. He was a complete outcast from society. No one would even associate with him. He was a religious and a social outcast. You might call him an untouchable. Worse than that, Matthew in that Jewish system had no hope for salvation uh, according to the, the way the Jews thought of things. He was utterly lost. Now, if you look at your text in Matthew 9, 9, Jesus had other ideas. And it says, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he stood up, that would be Matthew, stood up and followed him. You see, Matthew was basically an extortionist. He was a traitor to Israel with no hope for eternal life. He had no place in this world or in the next. He had been ignored, and except when he was enduring the anger and sneering of his countrymen, then Jesus simply comes up and says, follow me. Matthew had no choice in the matter. You know, people wonder about, uh, you know, whether or not we're elect. Well, here's the example of being elect. Matthew had no choice. Jesus came up and gave him a command. And Jesus had spoken directly to Matthew's heart. He couldn't say no to Jesus. He immediately obeyed. Luke's Gospel tells us that Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. Matthew would have been a relatively wealthy man. Tax collectors were known to be some of the wealthiest in that society. Matthew gave up all of that to follow Jesus. And Jesus used Matthew for the purpose of recording the events of his ministry. When we started this series, we found out that Matthew wrote this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As such, he compiled a meticulous and perfect recording of all the pertinent events in Jesus' life and ministry, many of which Matthew actually personally witnessed. Now this brings us to the purpose of Matthew's purpose for writing this gospel. In his gospel account, Matthew clearly presents Jesus as the long-awaited divine king who came to earth, who won redemption for his people, who suffered and died on the cross and was resurrected from the grave. And he has ascended to the throne of God and will be returning in triumphant glory as the conquering king. Now, we can boil this down to one central theme. 
In his gospel account, Matthew presents a powerful and airtight case that Jesus is the long-awaited messianic king. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the true king. And you can see this theme by looking at your text in Matthew 1. So turn back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and you'll see that Matthew starts his gospel by saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now in that verse, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we see that, that Matthew shows that Jesus has three divine titles. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. Now, all three of these titles have great significance, but Matthew assigns all three to Jesus. First, he says Jesus is the Christ, the, the Messiah. We must understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his divine title. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited-for Redeemer. According to Matthew, Jesus is, is, is the, he, he says he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, and therefore by giving him that title, he is saying he is the one who you've all been waiting for. Now by giving these three divine titles, he makes the unmistakable point that Jesus is the divine king, the Son of God. Now skip down to Matthew 1.16. In Matthew 1.16, he says, he says, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the mother or the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, or who is called Christ. Again, Matthew makes the point, the unmistakable point, that Jesus is the Messiah. Look down at verse 17. He says, he says again that, that Jesus is the Christ. Look down at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed. The Messianic title, Christos in the Greek, is the common thread which weaves its way through Matthew's account of Jesus' genealogy. Again, the author makes carefully the case. Again, I say it over and over because Matthew says it over and over. Matthew wants his readers to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Redeemer. And he was sent by the Father on a saving mission. Matthew points this out or spells this out clearly in verse 21. He says, And she will bear a son, that would be Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So beginning with the opening verse of his gospel, Matthew has very carefully and clearly articulated that Jesus is the son of David, the rightful heir to the Davidic throne, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is the promised seed from Genesis chapter 12. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the one promised in Genesis chapter 3, and he has been sent by the Father to save his people from their sins. It's unmistakable. Now you may also recall that Matthew recounts the events surrounding the birth of King Jesus. Look at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now, Matthew's birth announcement is 26 words in the Greek text. 26 words. Now, it is staggering the amount of information, the amount of truth conveyed in those, 26, in those 26 words. In the first 17 verses, Matthew gave the earthly origin of King Jesus, 
those verses prove that he is the rightful heir. He is the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. Yet there were other kings in Matthew's genealogy. So the question is, what makes this king different? This simple verse in verse 18 with just 26 words asserts that he is not just an earthly king. Truly, he is the heavenly king, the Son of God. In other words, these 26 words proclaim that Jesus is the true and heavenly king of the world. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Son of God. From the very beginning of his gospel, Matthew wants his readers to know that there is something absolutely different about the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. And looking at verse 18, Matthew tells us that Mary was found to be child, with child by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. Three Greek words, ek, phenumatos, hagiu, by the Holy Spirit. And it is imperative that, uh, that we believe the gospel witness that, that Mary was with, the chi- with child, not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. And with those three simple words, Matthew declares that the baby in Mary's womb uh, would be God incarnate, fully human, fully God. He would be God in the flesh. With those three words, Matthew, in the words of Sam Storms, we, we, I get used this quote last time I preached through, or, or the, when I preached through this, we either believe the virgin birth or not based upon our belief in the reality of the supernatural and the integrity of Scripture, end quote. Beloved, in this church... We believe that if Scripture says it, we believe it. He was born by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. In the words of the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians 4.13, I believe it, therefore I speak it. We preach it. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew clearly establishes that Jesus is the one sent by God to save his people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's verse 23, chapter 1, verse 23. Now, in Matthew 2, Matthew recorded the account of the Magi's visit to Bethlehem after Jesus' birth. The Magi were a mysterious group of kingmakers from the east. They came to recognize the arrival of the one true king. It is very likely that they had been expecting the Messiah, uh, the, the Redeemer the, of, of Genesis chapter 3, uh, the Redeemer uh, from the time of Daniel. The Old Testament book of Daniel describes uh, Daniel's rise among the Magi of Babylon. In Daniel chapter 2, God gave a dream to the king of Babylon, and, and none of the king's court were able to give him the interpretation. And the Lord sovereignly gave Daniel the interpretation of the king's dream, which he made known to the king. And in Daniel 2.24, Daniel actually pled for the wise men that they would not be destroyed by the king when they could not give the interpretation to him. So Daniel was able to prevent their destruction by giving the interpretation of the dream to the king. That's Daniel 2.24. This, along with Daniel's great wisdom, caused the wise men to highly regard him. Therefore, in God's providence, the king promoted Daniel and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, from this elevated position, Daniel must have taught these men about the coming Messiah. Therefore, look at your text in Matthew 2.2. If you look at your text in Matthew 2.2, you'll find 
that Magi, starting in verse 1, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, so, so the Magi must have heard from Daniel. They must have learned from Daniel that this, uh, this Messiah, this king of the Jews, was to come. And so when, G- when God revealed his star to them, they came to find uh, the, the, the baby Jesus. Now, Herod the Great was the king of Judea, Judea at the time of, of, of Jesus' birth. Now, if you look at Matthew 2, 1, it says, "...in the days of Herod the king." Herod was a wicked ruler who was bent on his power, building his power, which ultimately was derived or came from the Romans. Now, at the time of Jesus' birth, Herod was very close to the end of his life. He was suffering from uh, many grave illnesses, which helped actually drive the man uh, basically insane. I mean, he was just a—he was an absolute insane man. As time went on, he became more and more paranoid, even of his own closest family and friends. Therefore, he was profoundly threatened by the arrival of the, of the Magi and the prospect of the true king's arrival. So he used the Magi to locate the place of Jesus' birth. That's chapter 2, verse 8. And, and he, he, he lied to them and said go, you know, he wanted to go and, and, and worship him too. But God warned the, the Magi through a dream not to return to Herod. Therefore, after going to Jesus, after giving him gifts, they left without giving Herod Jesus' location. Now, after the Magi departed, an angel of the Lord told Joseph in a dream to flee Herod by going into Egypt with Mary and Joseph to, to make sure that, that, that to save uh, Jesus and make sure that he didn't um, kill him. Now, Herod responded by slaughtering all the male children to and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem. Now, as we read Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 2, we are briefly introduced to a group of people who will be present throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, I want to I really draw your attention this morning to these people because this is the key to understanding Matthew chapter 3 and the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, look at your Bibles back in Matthew 2, 3, and 4. When the Magi appeared in Jerusalem... Herod gathered all of the chief priests and scribes of the people. Now what he was doing is he gathered them to find out where the Messiah was to be born. He was inquiring of them where the Christ was was to be born. Now the chief priests and the scribes of the people were the religious leaders of Israel. Now they represented the people, especially spiritually. Now, I think, it would be, I think it would be appropriate to think of the chief priest as the magi of Israel. So it makes sense that, that Herod would approach them. I mean, they, they were the wise men of Israel. It, it, and then it's also, I believe, appropriate to compare their actions to the, the magi. These men, had, these men, these chief priests had great influence on the people, both politically and, and religiously, and from their position as religious leaders of Israel, they should have been the first to recognize the arrival of the true king. <coughs> now, by the time of Jesus' birth, the chief priests had morphed into a corrupt class of, of religious politicians bent on, really bent on keeping the status quo. Ultimately, they were in direct opposition to God's work. 
again, that's important to recognize and understand as we look at the ministry of John the Baptist this morning or begin to look at it. These, these men had zero interest in the Messiah's arrival. Ultimately, their lives were comfortable under the Roman system, and they didn't want anything to change that. The chief priests the, themselves were primarily Sadducees, while the scribes, which are mentioned here as well, were mostly Pharisees. The scribes were authorities on Jewish law. We mentioned them earlier with Matthew. They, they, they hated anything that was unclean, but they were authorities on Jewish law, both scriptural and traditional. They, therefore, they were referred to as lawyers. The, 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 the Jews considered them to be the key scholars within the religious power structure. The, the Pharisees were theologically, generally theologically conservative. They held a more literalistic view of Scripture. As such, they could be very legalistic in their approach to religious matters. They held a, a strict interpretation of ceremonial and, and moral law. The, the chief priests and the scribes then lived in Jerusalem and, and, and lived in and around Jerusalem, and they were even in the, the shadow of the temple. Again, Again, these people should have been the first to recognize the Messiah. Yet they were too busy pursuing a life of ease under the rule of the Romans to even notice what was going on. And so when the, the Magi rolled into town, they didn't even bother to verify the king's arrival. The Magi had come, and just, let's just compare the Magi with these men that we're talking about. The Magi had come from great distances to find the king and worship them, but they didn't even bother to lift a finger. And because of their apathy, the Jewish religious leadership wouldn't even go six miles down the road to find him when, when the Magi had come hundreds and hundreds of miles. Now, I would argue again, I would argue again that these men are the thread that weaves through Matthew's gospel. Matthew uses them to connect the account of King Jesus' birth uh, to the ministry of King Jesus' herald, John the Baptist. In truth, John the Baptist stood in direct opposition in every way to the establishment which included Herod's successors and the Jewish religious leaders. He stood in direct opposition to those things, and they hated him for it. They hated everything about him. They hated everything he stood for. Everything, everything that he stood for, they absolutely loathed. And this fact would ultimately lead to his imprisonment and to his beheading at the hand of Herod Antipas, the ruler of Galilee. That's, in, that's recorded in Matthew chapter 14. Their hatred for John started during his ministry, which we'll see described here in Matthew chapter 3. And again, I'm telling you, John the Baptist stood exactly opposite of these men. Now, with these things in mind, let's read, let's read Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying... Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan 
And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, now remember that thread, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. Then I am not fit to remove his sandals, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's just for those who don't believe that hell exists. Well, with that, let's look at the first mark of John's ministry. John was a unique messenger, is he not? Is he not a unique messenger? So who is John the Baptist? Well, the story of John the Baptist actually starts in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. You can turn there if you would like. John's story begins with his parents, a couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a humble priest who faithfully served the Lord and was married to a woman named Elizabeth. Now, Luke records that the couple, Luke and Zechariah, the couple were both righteous in the sight of God and walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. That's Luke chapter 1, verse 6. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth were childless and were advanced in years. And according to Luke, Zechariah went down to do his priestly duty in the temple at Jerusalem. He did this two weeks per year. He was chosen, actually chosen to go into or go inside the holy place and offer the incense on the altar of incense. This was, believe me, an incredibly high privilege for a priest. While he was in there, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, this is verse 13, chapter 1, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. The angel's miraculous pronouncement was first rec- the first recorded miracle in Israel for hundreds of years. There had not even been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. God had been deafeningly silent during those years. Now, at that point, seemingly out of nowhere, an angel appeared to Zechariah and brought this message that that God would cause Elizabeth to bear a child in, in her barrenness. According to Luke, this is the launching point of New Testament revelation. This child would be the sign that the long-awaited Messiah would come very soon, that very soon the long-awaited Messiah would burst upon the scene. 
the angel told Zechariah that John would be great and he would turn many of the sons of Israel back to their Lord, to the Lord their God. That's chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Now, look at your text in chapter 1, verse 18. This is Luke 1, 18. Zechariah didn't believe the angel's words. And so the angel said, And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So after this, Zechariah went out from the temple, and the people realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. But he couldn't talk and, and was only able to make signs to them. Now, all of these things occurred before the angel appeared to Mary. So just to give you some idea of content, context, Luke recorded that account in Luke 1, 26-38. Now, after all these things occurred, Zechariah took Elizabeth home, and she became pregnant and had a son, just as the angel had said. That's Luke 1, verse 57. Now look down at your text at Luke 1, 59 through 66. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they were going to call him Zechariah after the name of his father. But his mother answered and said, No, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. And they were making signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. And they all marveled. And at once his mouth was opened, and he wrote, and at once his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he began to speak, blessing God. So, Therefore, what we see here is that John's conception and the events surrounding his birth were miraculous. His parents were of advanced age. His, his mother was barren. His father had been made, was made mute by God, and his tongue was then loosed by God to ensure that the baby's name would be John. Now, these were no small happenings. The, just listen to Luke's words, or description of the people's reaction to all of these things. Listen to that, and it's uh, chapter 1, verse 65 and, and 66. He says, it says, And fear came over all those living around them. And all these matters were, matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard these things put them in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was indeed with him. Now, all of this happened, all these occurrences happened just before Jesus' birth and the Magi's visit uh, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, just to give you context. Luke gives further detail of the history of, of Jesus' early life. He tells us that Jesus was presented at the temple in Jerusalem. That's chapter 2, verse 22. And after these things, he tells us that Joseph and Mary settled in Nazareth. Now, other than that, we don't have much history of, the Gospels don't give much history of Jesus or John in the following years. We only have Luke's account of the 12-year-old Jesus going into the temple with his parents and astonishing the teachers of Israel. And according, according to then Luke and Matthew, the next event on that calendar would be John's appearance preaching in the wilderness of Judea, which is where we pick up in Matthew 3.1. Now, Matthew simply says, Now in those days John the Baptist came, 
preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now the question then becomes, when did John the Baptist appear? Well, Matthew doesn't give us much detail regarding the timing of John's appearance, but in typical Luke fashion, Luke is very careful and meticulous to give us the historical framework surrounding surrounding the appearance of John. So if you look at Luke 3, 1 and 2, Luke tells us that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Etteria, and Trachonitis, and Licinius was the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That was a mouthful. But that's typical Luke. Luke gives us exactly when it happened. So the Herod in Luke 3.1, by the way, we want to make sure we understand the Herod in Luke 3.1 is not Herod the Great. Herod the Great, according to Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 to 20, Herod the Great had passed away long before. He passed away after the events of Jesus' birth. Now, you may recall from our study, and I, I mentioned it earlier, that there was no amount, small amount of dysfunction in Herod's family. So when Herod died, three of his sons had some claim to the throne. Augustus, settled the ma- Augustus Caesar settled the matter by splitting the inheritance between them and a third one, but he didn't allow any of them to have full claim to the title of king. So Herod the Great's kingdom was split among his sons. The Herod mentioned by Luke is Herod Antipas, who, was, who replaced uh, his brother Archelaus, Archelaus was the first appointed tetrarch over Judea and Samaria, but get this, he was made to step down by the Roman Empire for cruelty. Just think of the Romans' cruelty. The cross should come to mind. And, and, and can you imagine how severe uh, the, the cruelty of Archelaus would have been to be thrown out of office by the Romans? And Luke continues on to mention some others. He mentions Philip who restored an ancient city and named it in, the honor of, in honor of Caesar and himself, Caesarea Philippi. Luke also references Annas and Caiaphas as being the high priest. Now, what we, what's interesting about that is, is that Israel would have only had one high priest at any given time. Annas had been the high priest, but he was removed from office by the Romans. The Jews then replaced him with Caiaphas. Now, yet they still honored Annas, who was encountered him at the level of high priest. So, Effectively, there were two high priests at the time of John's, John's arrival, Annas and Caiaphas. Luke also supplies, actually supplies all of this information to nail down the time when the ministry of John the Baptist began. But when we put all this, we put all this together, we, with Matthew's account, we didn't get this clear picture of when this occurred. Now, all, as we consider these things, I, I, here's what I don't want you to miss. It's something incredibly significant. John the Baptist and Jesus our Lord both existed in real history. In other words, the stuff that we see written on the pages of Scripture actually occurred in real time. Both these men 
Jesus and John lived here on earth with us. In other words, their lives actually happened. Their ministries actually happened. And there's no disputing that fact. Now, there's much more we can say about John the Baptist, and next week we're going to show that his ministry was prophesied by the Old Testament. And we'll also show that his ministry kicked off a greater chain of events which were anticipated by the prophets. In the meantime, I want to draw, briefly draw your attention to the second mark of the king's herald. And this is what got him in trouble. Look at your text in verse, chapter, Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we're going to unpack John's message more next time, but for now I want you to consider the timelessness of his message. Beloved, there's no greater call in all the world than to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, at hand, or is, is near or is at hand. The question is, do you sense the urgency in this message? John was calling his listeners to turn away from their sins and to turn to God. More specifically, he was calling Israel, he was calling for Israel, God's people, to repent. In the words of R.C. Sproul, repentance is first, the first command of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Repentance is not just sorrow for sin, but a decisive change, a turning away from sin to a life of obedience, end quote. Beloved, the human heart hates this message because it attacks us at, at the very core of who we sinfully desire to be. It attacks us at the very core of all that we sinfully desire. This message exposes our sinful pride and shows us our spiritual bankruptcy. It reveals our lawlessness and it reveals our lack of obedience to our Maker. You know, it's, repentance is a call to turn to God from our sin. And we can only do so. We can only turn to God from our sin if we do so in humility and faith. Humility says that we can't do it alone. Faith says that we believe God knows what's truly best. As we progress in our study, as we look at John the Baptist over the next week or two, we're going to see that John's message of repentance and, and baptism was directly aimed at Israel. It was directly aimed at the sons of Israel. And that was shocking to the Israel's religious establishment. They, they ultimately rejected it. They, they ultimately beheaded him for it. Or at least Herod did. But they did it because they hated it. They hated it because they were self-reliant because they were self-righteous, and they didn't want to hear that they needed to turn from their sins and turn to God. They didn't want to hear that it was by faith. Not only would they reject John, but they would ultimately reject the Messiah. 
Let me give you an implication here. Let me give you an implication. Have you ever noticed that God's judgment always begins in his house? This reminds me of Peter's words in 1 Peter 4.17. He, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. You see, God has a pattern of purging and strengthening his people through fiery trials and suffering. This is not condemnation, condemnation unless we reject it. But it is the chastening and purifying of God's people by God's loving hand. John MacArthur says this, It is far better and more important to kingdom work to endure suffering as the Lord purges and strengthens the church than to endure the eternal sufferings of the unbeliever in the lake of fire. End quote. If you're here today and you're part of God's people, you know the Lord Jesus, you turn to Him in saving faith. Maybe, maybe you're wondering, I prayed it earlier, maybe you're wondering why God sends such fiery trials in your direction. Just to be honest, I wonder why. I see Him in my own life, I see Him in your life, I see Him in the life of the church, and I wonder why. Why, Lord? Well, the answer is he does it because he wants, he wants you to be strengthened. He wants the church to be purified. Beloved, the call to repentance begins with the household of God. The warning that God's judgment is near starts with us. It starts with those who have trusted that Jesus will rescue us from the wrath to come. I've mentioned Peter's words in 1 Peter 4, 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And he says this, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Again, in John MacArthur's words, and if God so strongly and painfully judges His church, which He loves, what will His fury be on the ungodly? Church, let me connect this to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a unique messenger who preached a, an unrivaled message. It's the same message that we need to preach today. John the Baptist called for, called for people to repent, for the kingdom of, kingdom of God is at hand. You see, the Lord Jesus has provided the way. He's provided the way. He has gone to the cross. He has defeated sin and death. He has defeated the grave. He has risen, and He is now at the right hand of the Father. Here's the answer. Look to Him. Look to Him. I promise He will not disappoint. He will not disappoint. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning.
Lord, as we consider the ministry of John the Baptist, Father, may we not do so from a point of pride. Father, it's easy for us to look at the religious authorities of Israel and say, how could they not get it? How could they not understand? How could they be so aloof, spiritually prideful? And then you look at the ministry of John the Baptist, O Lord, and we see a man who stood against everything that they stood for. Father, may we not miss that point. May we not miss that point. May we not be spiritually aloof. Father, may we just understand the simplicity of the Gospel. The simplicity of the call to faith. That you are calling us to repent, turn to you, to believe you, trust in you. Father, that we would be and understand the urgency of that message. Father, we see it in John's words, speaking of the wrath to come. May we never forget. May we never forget that the kingdom of God is truly at hand, is near. That you will judge mankind. That you will judge men. It's appointed for us to die, then comes the judgment. Father, may we not forget, may we ever trust in You that You are the one who saves. You are the one who makes us righteous. Father, that we are filthy, our deeds are filthy rags. Father, I pray that we would take heed even today. And if there be anybody here who doesn't know You, that they would repent. That they would repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. They would repent for the wrath is coming. For those who know You, for those of us who call themselves Christians, may we, Lord, understand that Judgment begins in the household of God. Father, may we repent and turn, and Lord, may we serve You with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we love You more than anything and love our neighbors ourselves, Lord. May we be kingdom citizens even now. Father, gathered around Your throne, worshiping You with all of our lives. In Christ's name, Amen.